0: Well, if you have a Bible, open up to uh, Luke chapter 19. We continue our study through the gospel of Luke. We come this morning to the tail end of chapter 19. Most of this passage is going to be in chapter 20. Um, It'll definitely be helpful to have the Bible open as we go along. We'll be referencing particular passages, so it's helpful to be able to look down there and see where we are. Luke chapter 19, verse 47, and we'll go through chapter 20, verse 19 um there's sort of a bare bones outline on the back of that bulletin if you want to keep an eye on that if that's helpful for you as as we move ahead luke 19 47 through chapter 20 verse 19. um in 2015 when the supreme court made the decision uh in their own mind to redefine marriage the chief justice wrote a dissenting opinion and one question that he asked in that opinion he, he says just who do we think we are and he's addressing that to the majority of the court he uses first-person language there, but he's, he's addressing the, the justices who, who voted to, uh, to change that definition or to see it differently. But basically what, what he was saying is not only is the court doing something they shouldn't do, but the court's doing something they don't even have the authority to do. Well, that's the kind of charge that's being lobbed against Jesus in this passage of Scripture. The religious leaders, they come to him, and they're basically asking him, Jesus, who do you think you are? to do the things you're doing and to say the things that you have been saying. Of course, the difference between the the case with John Roberts and with Jesus is is that he actually has the authority to say everything he said and to do everything that he did. Well, the, the first half of the passage really sets up the second half. So let's hear the first half. Now hear the word of the Lord, beginning in chapter 19, verse 47. Every day Jesus was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him, but they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin?" They discuss it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So this is the the first half of our passage and, and it goes along. There's been a theme that's been developing in the gospel of Luke where the religious teachers, they really don't like Jesus. And they're increasingly looking for a way to silence him. So we see that even in the first verses here in our passage. And then we'll see it down at the tail end. It kind of brackets this passage. So look back, chapter 19, verse 47 again. Every day he was teaching in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. But they could not find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard well initially if you haven't been listening with the gospel of luke or or even if you have been it still sort of stands out why is it they're so upset with jesus that they're looking for a way to to not only sort of get him out of the vicinity not only to undercut his teaching but to actually kill him to take his life why are they so upset well he had recently done some things in in his ministry that they didn't like and we've seen this throughout the gospel of luke so So, this past Sunday, the most recent passage, we saw him throwing out the religious leaders out of the temple, casting them out. Obviously, they didn't like that. That didn't make them very happy. In chapter 19, verse 40, we see Jesus accept worship. The religious teachers thought that was blasphemous because they don't think Jesus is God, they think he's just a guy. So, to receive worship is blasphemous. They didn't like that. That didn't make them very happy. So, in chapter 19, verse 7, he accepts Zacchaeus. He eats in Zacchaeus' house, he was a tax collector. So these religious leaders thought this guy isn't a good religious teacher he's not supposed to be spending time with people like that that didn't make them very happy in chapter 18 verse 9 he tells a parable about the pharisee and the tax collector where the good guy the one who's justified in god's eyes is the tax collector and the one who is condemned who's counted guilty in god's eyes is the pharisee obviously that didn't make them very happy so time and time again there's occasions like this that it made the religious leaders really upset with Jesus. And that's kind of been building. And so out of their anger, they try to corner Jesus in our passage. They make this accusation against him. Verse two, again, of chapter 20. And they said to him, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? So basically they're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? Where do you think you got this authority? Why are you talking this way? And it's clear this is not an honest question so it's not that they're coming to jesus looking for information and then he'll provide it and then they'll come right along that's not what's happening here it's accusatory they are trying to put him in a corner it's a dishonest question it's a crooked question and this is something you see over and over again in the gospel stories jesus usually doesn't give straight answers to crooked questions He usually doesn't do that. Look at how he responds here. Verse three, he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? So when he talks about John, he's talking about his cousin, John the Baptist, who is really highlighted at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, among all the other gospels. And he was the one that was a prophet of the Lord and was given the task of preparing the way for the Lord. And God had given him the symbol of baptism to say to the people, hey, if, if you wanna to come to the Lord, people of God, you need to repent, you need to trust in the, the savior who I'm making a way for, and you need to be baptized. So what he's asking the Pharisees is, hey, you guys, and of course this is in front of the crowds of people. That's, that's why the Pharisees and the religious leaders ask this question. They wanna get Jesus, uh, the crowds to see, oh, he's he's guilty of something. And so in front of those crowds, Jesus says back to them, Do you think john was really called by the lord do you think he really was a true prophet or do you think he was a fake prophet and it was just from himself that he sort of made up these things and brought this baptism well just like the religious leaders they don't like jesus they don't like john either so if they're just in a room by themselves then they're saying yeah of course john is not from the lord they didn't like john same way they didn't like jesus but the crowds at this time they do like john just like they like jesus and because the religious leaders in our passage are all about public approval the way the bible talks about that is they fear men it's ironic because they're not fearing the lord as we'll see throughout the rest of the passage but they are afraid of their their fellow citizens they want public approval well because of that they don't know how to answer the question so look at verse five They discuss it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, well, then why didn't you believe them or believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So you see, they're stuck. Verse seven. So they answered that they did not know its origin. Jesus is really clever. And so he takes their accusation where they're trying to put him in a corner. And he puts them in a corner. He answers their question by giving them a question he knows they won't be willing to answer. And then when they don't answer it, look at what he says, verse 8. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus doesn't give straight answers to crooked questions. And the reason he can do that is the, the first main point that we want to notice from our passage this morning. Jesus doesn't owe sinners anything. He doesn't oh sinners anything and one application of that principle is jesus doesn't have to answer their questions not a single one. not if he doesn't want to and and certainly he doesn't have to answer the questions where they're challenging him in fact some of the most entertaining passages of scripture are the passages where there are sinful humans like us who are challenging the lord and saying you did something wrong here lord and then his response to them. Those are entertaining passages of scripture. I'll give you one example and then commend a section to read this afternoon. This is Romans chapter 9, verse 29, where Paul says, "'Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God?' So Paul sets up this scenario where he's talking about God's sovereignty, his control over all things, and he says, I know what you're thinking, you're thinking this isn't fair. And then that's where he goes, he says, who are you? a mere man to answer back to God. This afternoon, here's the commendation. Read Job chapter 38 through 42. Here's what you're going to see in those chapters. It'll be a little bit startling if you haven't read it in a while. That's where Job sort of pivots. And he he basically says, Lord, this isn't fair, this thing you've been doing. And then those chapters are God's answer to that kind of thinking, where maybe God has done something wrong. And so it's, it's dripping with sarcasm. That's the surprising thing about it as he goes through those chapters. Man can can challenge Jesus all he wants, but but Jesus doesn't owe sinners anything, right? He's, He's the entirely sinless creator and Lord of the universe and we're sinful, rebellious creatures. And the application for us, if you're here and you're a believer, the application is simple. Never challenge Jesus, never challenge Jesus. Now, that that doesn't mean that we can't question the Lord, right? You can question the Lord in a way that's perfectly pleasing to the Lord. That's what a lot of the Psalms are about. The Psalms of lament. David and others are coming to the Lord and saying, why is it this way? This doesn't seem to fit with your character, Lord. How does this work? But see, what you see in in questions like that, where the Lord's okay with it, in questions like that, the the person coming to the Lord is, is like a defendant in a trial who's approaching the judge as the judge and sort of with respect and fear and reverence is saying, hey, how, how does this work? Help me understand. What these religious leaders are doing here is they're, they're putting themselves in the seat of the judge and they're putting Jesus in the dock. They're, they're putting Jesus in the shoes of the defendant, which is insane. That is insanity when sinful man puts Jesus underneath our judgment. It's incredible that Jesus responds at all he certainly didn't have to. And again, that's because Jesus doesn't owe sinners anything. However, in a sort of backhanded way, probably more for the crowds than for the religious leaders, but in this backhanded way, he does answer their question with the second part of our passage, which is a parable. So in verses nine through 16 of chapter 20, he gives this story to make clear exactly where his authority comes from. It's, it's a subversive answer to their question. Look at verse nine, let's look at the parable. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treating him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. This is a, a jarring story. A jarring parable, especially for people that haven't heard it before, which, of course, is everybody in the crowd around Jesus. And it's jarring because the actions of these characters are so incredibly evil. So it's it's bad enough that they would exploit the owner of this vineyard, the guy who had given them a job, right, given them a livelihood. And then they steal money from him. They, they don't give him any of the profit that that is his. But but worse than that, when he sends these servants to approach them and to say, hey, you need to, you need to do the right thing here. They beat those guys up. They, they physically assault those guys and and toss them out. And then the climax of the story is when he sends his own son thinking they'll at least respect my son. But of course they do the opposite. They save the worst for the son and, and they kill him. So what's the purpose of this story? What, what's this parable meant to teach the crowd in Luke 20 and teach us here this morning? What does he intend to for us to be persuaded of. Well, to figure that out, we need to start by seeing what the various elements of the parable stand for. So what is it that they are symbolic of? Look at the first line of the parable, middle of verse nine. A man planted a vineyard. Well, right away this setup would have called these Jewish hearers back to a, a well-known chapter in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter five. So this is Isaiah chapter five, Verse 1, it's about the Lord's relationship with Israel. And there the prophet says, The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. Okay, well, the one who planted the vineyard is clearly the Lord. Israel would have understood that. When they hear, when they hear somebody so plants a vineyard, then they're thinking, Okay, I've heard this before. That's the Lord. God planted a vineyard, easy enough. So what does the vineyard stand for? Isaiah five, as well as the history of the Old Testament, makes it pretty clear. The vineyard is the mission that God had employed Israel to be part of. It's the mission that he had given his people. That's the vineyard. And that mission is, they were supposed to be God's faithful children who obeyed him and lived in his presence and represented him faithfully to the world. That's what they were supposed to do. That's the vineyard. It's the mission God gave to Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1 and 2. It's the mission God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 17. It's the mission God gave to Israel when he brought them out of Egypt. That's the vineyard. It's the mission he had given them. Okay. Now, now who are these servants that the owner sends to call these wicked guys to give the fruit of the harvest? uh to the guy that owns the vineyard those are the prophets that you see throughout the old testament those are the prophets now a prophet's just somebody who god supernaturally gave his word to in order for them to turn around and give that word to god's people that's what a prophet is god supernaturally gives them his word they're expected to turn around and give his word to his people and this is the chief way that throughout the Old Testament, God is regularly calling his people to turn from their sin and turn back to faithfulness to the Lord. In fact, he sent about 30 of these prophets throughout the Old Testament over the course of about 500 years. But listen to the way God's people almost always respond to these prophets. Jeremiah sums it up. He was one of the prophets. This is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 23. This will help us to understand the parable. And understand that the people would have understood it this way. Jeremiah 7, verse 23 and following. I gave Israel this command, this is the Lord speaking, obey me and then I will be your God and you will be my people. Follow every way I command you so that it may go well with you. Yet they didn't listen or pay attention, but followed their own advice and their own stubborn evil heart. They went backward and not forward. Since the day your ancestors came out of the land of Egypt until today, this is the significant part. I have sent all my servants, the prophets, to you time and time again. So you see how that fits perfectly with this parable. They would have understood that. This was a theme in the Old Testament. God's always sending his prophets. His servants is a way that he talks about his prophets. And his people are continually rejecting them. That's exactly what this parable is about. Verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so they might give him some of the fruit from the vineyard, but the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Jesus has given a parable that describes Israel's history. And, And this is a good thing for us to pray for as individuals, but also as a church. Pray that we wouldn't reject the word of the Lord the way that God's people did all throughout the Old Testament. They interacted with the word, it's brought to them, and they continually rejected. So let's pray that we would be individual Christians and also a church collectively that would respond to God's word. We would only need to hear it once. and When God's word is given to us clearly, that we would respond. But see, Israel didn't. So now we understand this parable, what Jesus is getting at. Let's highlight a few of the main points. Again, these are listed on the the back of the bulletin. We're gonna look at four of them from this parable. And the first one is, we've already hinted at it, mankind is shockingly evil. That's the first main thing I think we see in this parable, mankind is shockingly evil. Can can you imagine hearing about a story like this? So think about it not as a parable, but think about tomorrow if you read about this in the paper, if you hear about this on on the news, that, that somebody starts a business, his employees begin to steal from him and so instead of alerting the authorities right away which i think is what all of us would have done and certainly have a right to do instead of doing that he's merciful and gracious and he sends another employee saying hey go try to talk some sense into these guys and he walks into the building and they physically assault him and jump him and beat him up and then pitch him out of the building that's crazy but that's, that's exactly what happens here in this story. And then the owner tries to send a second employee. They do the same thing. They beat him up. He sends a third. They beat him up. That kind of evil is shocking. But again, that's what we see in Scripture. Mankind is shockingly evil. Now, now Jesus, his specific target in this parable is the people of Israel. Those are the folks standing around him. Those were God's people in the Old Testament. However, of course, it's applicable to us, non-Jews share the same human nature with Israel. So we all descend from our initial parents that fell into sin, Adam and Eve. So so we can easily transition from Israel to all of mankind. And mankind is shockingly evil. And we need to understand, so, so this is a message that past generations of people understood a little bit of, not fully, but a little bit of. But the culture that we find ourselves in They really don't understand this much at all. So the majority of the non-believers that you're around, they probably, you could be an exception, but my guess is they think that human nature is pretty good, or at least neutral. They would probably say, oh, I know all sorts of good people. I myself am not perfect, but I'm a pretty good person. And they would think the exception is some bad apples. But that means human nature isn't bad altogether, or we would all be bad, they would say. You'd probably say, no, human nature is is pretty good. So the question is, is that true? Does the Bible say there's a problem with human nature? Man, praise the Lord for easy questions. Yes. It's a resounding yes in Scripture. Let me read you a few passages of Scripture that, that make this clear. We could start with what the world becomes quickly after Adam and Eve fall into sin. This is Genesis 6, verse 5. It's before the flood. It's the reason for the flood. Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. It's pretty bad, isn't it? It's pretty bad. Human nature is evil. Or Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and it is incurable. Or Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse three, The hearts of people are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. Finally, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, and following. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There's no one who does what is good, not even one. It's a clear answer, isn't it? Human nature is not good. Human nature is crooked and broken and evil. On, on our own, we're, we're depraved. And see, Jesus' point is that Israel should see that in their own history. So just like the vineyard owner had sent the employee after employee to go try to talk reason into these guys, to get them to turn from their evil, God had sent prophet after prophet to his people all throughout the Old Testament. But, but Israel had rejected every one of them. Stephen, one of the first deacons in the Jerusalem church, he sums this up in a sermon he gives in Acts chapter seven. This is what he says in verse 51 of Acts seven. He says, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit. As your ancestors did, you do also. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? But but see, the parable and the history reflects they get even worse than this. This would be bad enough. Shockingly evil, but it gets, it gets even worse than this. So the vineyard employees, they beat up these three guys the owner sends, verse 13 in our passage. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. It's an amazing amount of grace and mercy on the part of the vineyard owner. We're gonna talk about that more in a minute, but, but to understand the evil of what's gonna happen, We need to recognize the goodness of this owner trusting that surely these men wouldn't abuse his own flesh and blood that they would have a little bit of respect for him and that's what makes the the next two verses so shocking verse 14. but when the tenant farmers saw him they discussed it among themselves and said this is the heir let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him so not only do they reject the vineyard owner's son, but they take his life. They, they kill him. And you, you may wonder, you may not, but you may have noticed it. What's, what's the detail about throwing him out of the vineyard? That seems kind of odd. He comes into the vineyard, why not kill him and then maybe take the body outside? Why did they cast him out of the vineyard before they killed him? Well, most likely that's because they knew that those grapes would be considered by the law as ceremonially unclean if there was a dead body close to them. That's how calculating they are. So all they care about is the money that they'll get from these grapes. Isn't that wild? So in thinking about killing this son, that's their concern. Okay, we're gonna kill this son, that's no big deal. But we need to throw him out of the vineyard first, because if we kill him in the vineyard, we're gonna lose some money from these grapes, the loss of these grapes. Mankind is shockingly evil. And of course, the son in this parable it's Jesus talking about what's what's gonna to happen to him. So in this parable, he makes it pretty clear for us. The vineyard owner calls, calls the son, my beloved son. You've heard that before. You've heard it in the gospel of Luke. This is Luke chapter three, verse 22 at Jesus's baptism. The father says, you are my beloved son. This parable is about Jesus. It's about the fate of the son of God. Here's what he told the disciples back in chapter 18, verse 31. He said, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Everything that's written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on. And after they flog him, they will kill him. So shortly after, Jesus tells this parable, he's he's going to be murdered. His life will be taken from him. They will murder the Son of God. In fact, like we're told in chapter 19, verse 47, the only reason they haven't crucified Jesus yet is because they can't get him away from the crowds. They can't find a way to, to catch him. They just need the opportunity. So, so not only had God sent his prophets into the world over and over again, calling Israel to repentance, but, but he's finally sent his own son and the world murdered him for it. Mankind is shockingly evil. But we don't want to miss this. The feelings that we have right now as we think about this story in real life, okay, what if I really heard about a story like this? How would I feel those feelings that we have for the folks in the story and the folks that are going to put Jesus on the cross in the next few chapters, those are the feelings we should also have towards ourselves. So so on our own, we're sinful rebels, too. We have the same human nature that these folks have in the story all throughout Israel's history and the folks that are going to put Christ on the cross on On our own, we're the ones who have stolen glory away from the Lord, not offering what it is that he calls us to give to him. And for the Christian, apart from God's grace of opening your eyes and softening your heart, you would have called for Jesus' death, too. I would have called for Jesus' death. In in our own nature, it's, it's shocking how evil we are. But set against the evil of man, we should notice the mercy of God. This is the second thing we see from this parable. God has been so merciful. So again, think what you would have done if you had been in the vineyard owner's position. So they're stealing money from you. Let's say you started a business in another state. So you're waiting to get the profits. They don't send you anything. You'd probably call the authorities right then and there. You probably wouldn't fool with sending somebody to them. But let's say you do that. You send one of your employees there and they physically assault him. What would you do? You'd call the authorities. You'd put an end to it right then to to have that guy avenged, but then also to, to get what belongs to you and to bring these guys to justice. We would have been done with them. But what does the vineyard owner in Jesus's parable do? He tends, he sends two more employees. He's long suffering. He's patient. And even more amazingly, if the same thing happens, he sends his own son. So, the Old Testament, it's a story of mankind's evil, but it's also a story of God's mercy. God's mercy and his patience. We would have all thought it was just time to end Israel early on, but God's more merciful than we are. And it's also important to remember that's why Christ hasn't yet returned. That's the sole reason that scripture gives us for why Jesus hasn't yet come back. He wants more people to repent and trust in Christ and be saved. That's why the Lord hasn't yet returned. That's what 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 teaches us. So by way of application, have you recognized God's mercy in this way in your life? So as you think about the story, how, how merciful the vineyard owner is, do you recognize that that's how God has been with you? And we can get more practical. Do you realize that if the Lord... If the Lord Jesus Christ had returned the day before you self consciously were trusting in Christ, then you would have been separated from him for all eternity, and rightfully so. You would be suffering in torment, paying for your sins. If Christ had just returned one day before you converted, before you were trusting in Christ, I see the reason he didn't is because God is so merciful to us. He's so merciful. And again, by way of application, a good question for us, are you merciful? So are you merciful the way God is merciful? Because Jesus draws a straight line between those two things. So this truth we're considering, okay, God's really merciful. What does that have to do with me? Jesus tells us exactly what it has to do with us as Christians. Luke chapter six, verse 35, he says, love your enemies, do what is good and lend expecting nothing in return. Then you will be children of the Most High, for he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. That's what we've been talking about. Be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. That's a good thing to remember, isn't it? With the people around you, with your children, with your spouse, with your coworkers, with people that have made themselves your enemy. So we're supposed to look at the way that the father responded to us when we were his enemies. He was so merciful to us. We're supposed to turn and respond that way to other people. To be merciful, because God has been so merciful to us. But God won't be merciful in this way forever. Parable makes that really, really clear. So third, God will avenge the son. Look at verse 15. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, about the son. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. So the the owner he draws the line with the murder of his son that's the final straw for him and that's something god won't god the father won't put up with that either in fact the murder of the son of god has been and will always be the worst evil that mankind will ever perpetrate that's it that's the worst thing so when people talk about the problem of evil be sure they understand the worst thing that ever happened was the son of god being put on the cross Was him having to suffer if someone ever needed proof that mankind is evil this is it as a human race we've rejected and murdered the son of god and again it's it's at this point in the parable when the vineyard owner says enough is enough look again at at what the owner does and, and then the people's reaction to the climax of the parable verse 16 he will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others but when they when the people when they heard this they said that must never happen and when the people say that must never happen they're talking about the vineyard owner giving the vineyard to others so this jewish audience they had put the pieces together they realized okay he's talking about the history of israel the prophets go to us servants of god we rejected them and now he's saying that the son's going to be killed and then the vineyard is going to be given to others it's not just going to be exclusively For Israel anymore. And that's where they say, that's crazy. That must never happen. But that's exactly what happens. Listen to the way Luke records it in Acts chapter 13, verse 46. Paul and Barnabas boldly replied, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, the Israelites, since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. That's what Jesus is talking about. Now, now that doesn't mean that after the crucifixion the gospel would only be preached to non-Jews. Paul was a Jew and he was converted, right? He heard the gospel that continues today, praise God. But it does mean Israel will no longer be considered God's exclusive people. It means that the gospel in Acts is going to be ejected out into the rest of the world, so that every tribe and nation and tongue can hear the gospel. It does mean that Gentiles in the Book of Acts don't have to become Jews in order to be saved, as Acts 15 makes clear. But but what these Israelites are supposed to see is how merciful God had been to them in the past, how patient he had been, and that it's a huge deal for him to pivot all of a sudden and say, okay, enough is enough. So see, that's the setup. They were used to God being merciful. This is different for him to turn and be like, okay, that's it god in the old testament he's kind of like a teapot throughout the old testament where the water is getting hotter and where there's steam but but it's not boiling yet it was just hot you might remember this from school i had to search it on the internet no surprise but water boils at 212 degrees so the question is okay by the end of the old testament god might be 211 degrees but what bumps him up that extra degree Because the people here are thinking, no, that must never be. He would never take away the vineyard exclusively from Israel. So what is it that bumps him up that extra degree? It's the rejection of the son. That's what pushes him over the edge. Enough is enough. The people's murder of Christ would be the final straw. Verse 16, he will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. Now understand this, this isn't like a plan B. It's not like God held it together emotionally, and then he's just so shocked that they're going to reject Christ. And then all of a sudden it pushes him over the edge. No, he, he's not like a human in that way. God doesn't have emotions the way we do, where he has ups and downs. Praise God, he doesn't change. He's, he's steady. And this has always been the plan. We see that in this passage. So when the crowds are offended by the idea of God judging Israel, look at what Jesus does. Verse 17 But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118. Ironically enough, the very psalm that the crowds were singing as he comes in in the triumphal entry, he quotes from that same psalm. And see, Psalm 118 was given by the Lord a long time before the crucifixion of Christ. So the, the re- rejection of Jesus by God's people, the sending of the gospel to the nations, that had always been God's plan. It had always been his plan. So, so what's Jesus saying by quoting this psalm? Well, the imagery of verse 17 is pretty straightforward. So he's talking about himself as a cornerstone. You're probably familiar with this. That's the first stone that's laid in the foundation of a building. It's the one that starts, and every other stone, that cornerstone is their reference point. They're all placed around it. They all fit around it. So if the cornerstone is misplaced, the entire building will be off. Well, Jesus is making it clear that because Israel hasn't accepted him, they're building around the wrong cornerstone. That's the image that he's giving there. And and when you reject the cornerstone of Christ, that leads to death. So our house in Maine, it was down at the bottom of a big hill. It had a basement window in the back. And uh, in Maine, there was lots of snow to the point where the kids, you know, in the backyard where it would accumulate, you're not shoveling in the backyard. So they just knew, at least the little ones, we don't get to walk in the backyard because mom and dad will never see us again. We'll be down below below the snow. Sometimes it was four feet, you know? So anyway, all that snow melts and that water goes somewhere. Well, we learned it goes into our basement. So it comes down the hill and then it would fill up the window well up to the window and it would seep in through the window, right? Praise the Lord, we took care of that. But for a while it was kind of dicey and I was having to go out there and take a bucket and empty water and put a pump in there and that sort of thing. But early on I thought, okay, one thing I can do is I can dig this well deeper by the window and then it'll give me more time for the water to fill up. So I'm digging and I'm emptying it and trying to make it deeper. And the thing about Maine, it's really rocky soil, big rocks that are just beneath the soil. And so I'm digging and I'm pulling out these rocks, and there's one huge stone. And so I think to myself, oh, this is it. If I get this stone out, that will solve my problem. I'll be able to dig deeper. There'll be so much more room for this water. I'll be able to sleep. I won't have to set an alarm for 3 o'clock to look at the window well, and it'll be great. So I start pulling out that huge stone. And thankfully, before I actually pulled it out, I realized that stone is what the steel frame was sitting on that went around the window well. And if I had pulled out that stone, that frame would have instantly fallen down and all of that soil would have just collapsed into that window well. That's what Jesus is saying about himself. So he is that rock that is holding up the entire thing. But see, the religious leaders and Israel largely, they were like me, who just says, oh, this rock is a problem. We need to get this rock out of here. But by wanting to pull Jesus out by throwing him away, everything is going to cave in. That's what he's telling them. First, verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whoever it falls, it will shatter him. See, one day Christ will return. He'll be sent by the Father to come and fully and finally judge his enemies. And, and all of those who rejected him will be judged. He will land on them, is the imagery we're given here. So, So even though Jesus came the first time, his incarnation— we saw that pictured a few weeks ago. He comes empty-handed and humbly riding on a donkey. The second time he comes, it won't be like that. The second time he comes on a horse with a sword is the imagery we're given. And then to use the terminology of verse 18, he'll break and shatter his enemies. He'll cast them out of the vineyard. Rejection of Christ leads to death, not, not the actual losing of earthly life. That wouldn't be nearly as bad as the kind of death that Scripture talks about which is eternal separation from God in hell. That's what comes from rejecting Christ. Of course, the good news is that there's a way to be saved. And this is our final point from the parable this morning. Salvation comes through belief in the Son. Salvation is offered alone through Christ. Jesus hints at it back in verse 16. He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. So see, everybody isn't killed. There are these others that show up in this parable. They're saved. They're given the vineyard. And for any right-thinking person, that's the most important question that comes from this parable. Okay, how can I be one of these others? Well, as we close, let's let the apostle Peter answer that question with the same imagery from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6. And there he says, For it stands in scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. So there's our imagery again. This is Christ. He's the cornerstone. I've laid a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So for those who reject Christ, they'll be broken to pieces. They'll be shattered. But for the one who believes in Christ, that person person will be saved. Salvation comes through belief in the Son. And that's why you're here, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you don't know what you think about Christ, this is what's being called on for you this morning, is to turn from your rejection of Christ and put your full hope and confidence in him. Trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Because see, if if you die or Christ returns, the only way to not be crushed and shattered by the rock is coming to Christ now. Putting your full hope and confidence in him. And if you haven't done that, Come talk with me after the service. Send me an email. Talk, talk to one of the other pastors here, Charlie or Mark or Tim. See, for those of us who are trusting in Christ, for the members of this church and for other believers that are joining with us this morning, Christ has taken your sins. He's taken your sins. Because of your connection to Jesus by faith alone in him, he's taken the crushing that you deserve. He, he's taken the shattering that you deserve. He took it on the cross He bore God's wrath. That's a substitute for us standing in our place. And and here's what's incredible about this. The worst sin any of us has ever committed, it's wild to think in those terms, but what I'm saying is true. The worst sin any of us has committed was rejecting the Son of God. Now, as a non-Christian, we understand we aren't born as Christians. We have to be born again. That comes through self-conscious faith alone in Christ alone, right? We're not born as children of God. Now, for that to happen, we have to trust in Jesus. So what this means is the worst sin that you've ever committed was that perpetual rejection of Christ until, in God's grace, you finally came to Jesus and and trusted in him. So again, to answer the initial question the Pharisees asked, Jesus' authority comes from God the Father. He's the Son who was sent into the world to reunite us with our Creator. But, But every day you were rejecting him, you were rejecting the Son of God. You were tossing him out of the vineyard and happy to see him murdered. As non-Christians, that was all of us. We deserved what verse 16 says, he will come and kill those farmers. But see, Jesus paid for that sin. Here's the wild part, think about this. The worst sin you ever committed was to reject Jesus. On the cross, Jesus was paying for our sin of rejecting Jesus. Isn't that wild? So he allowed himself to be cast out of the vineyard. He did that on purpose, going to the cross, to pay for among the many sins, the sin of us throwing him out of the vineyard and putting him on the cross. He was substituting himself for us. He's not only the son of God who has all authority, but but he's also such a merciful and self-giving savior. He's such a good savior to us. Praise him for it. Let's pray together. Father, we're so thankful For this cornerstone we're so thankful father we we know that the only reason anybody in this room escaped from that stone landing on us the way that that it rightfully should have that's what we deserved is god's full and unmeasured wrath because of our rejection of christ and our rejection of the lord father we're so thankful that that for the christian god has given us eternal life that he made a way for us to believe in Christ and have even that sin paid for. We're so thankful, Father, that through belief in this cornerstone, that we don't have anything to fear by way of judgment any longer. Father, we pray that we would emulate the mercy that we have seen from God our Father to others. Father, we pray that we would always recognize how good and merciful and gracious you have been to forgive us the, uh, the shocking evil of the days where we rejected Christ and even the, the times where we continue to sin. But we're so thankful that in your grace, you have offered us this way, this good news of the gospel to be made right with you through this cornerstone. And it's in his name we pray, amen. <laughs>